So we are in a sermon series titled Subversive Unity. And in this sermon series, we've been going through the letter to the Philippians. And so this is the last sermon in that series. And we are, our text for today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 23. And so here at this church, we have a tradition of standing for the reading of God's word. And so would you all please stand as I read today's passage. And for those of y'all who are flipping in your Bibles, again, we are in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 23. If you have it, say amen. Amen. All right, I always wanted to do that. I always felt like I was left behind, like people would start reading it and I hadn't had it yet, so amen. All right, so the word of the God for today. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all can sit down. There's two more verses, but I'll read them. (laughs) Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Oh, all right, y'all. So my parents' dog is hilarious for multiple reasons, but my favorite is how emotional he is. I mean, this dog has full-grown human feelings, and he shows them. 
My stepdad, Larry, in orange right there, is Frank's favorite person. I mean, when Larry is around, Frank is so excited, jumping up and down, tail wagging, utmost doggy excitement. I wish I had a video so I could show y'all what his doggy joy looked like. But in case you're not a dog person, you could also imagine a small child, perhaps even you as a child, visibly happy. Their favorite person has returned after a long day at work or perhaps even a short excursion to the grocery store, and now their world is made right. Joy makes sense in these circumstances. Now, imagine Paul, one of the authors of this letter, who is writing it from prison, likely in the capital of the Roman Empire, on charges that could very well result in capital punishment. Does rejoicing make sense in this situation? Or even consider the church in Philippi, to whom this letter was written, who were facing opposition because of their belief in Jesus Christ. They were at risk of losing their livelihood because of the way their faith called them to live counterculturally. They were facing, and in some of cases, experiencing ostracization from their family and friends because they were no longer doing the things like emperor worship that others expected them to do? Does rejoicing make sense while facing financial ruin, while being in prison, or while experiencing abandonment? I know we're in church, but we can be honest and say no, it makes absolutely no sense. And yet here we are today in this passage. Throughout his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul encouraged them to remain steadfast in both their Christian faith and in their unity as one body. We've been blessed to explore this letter through the preaching gifts of several preachers before me, including Minister Juan Kim, Dennis Bourne, Pastor David, and Pastor Pete. They've walked us through the, mutual, the themes of mutual love, humility, unity, and the energizing and empowering nature of our gospel. And Paul has mentioned rejoicing all throughout the letter, but here at the end of the letter, he puts a fine note on it. In this passage... Paul reminded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord regardless of their circumstances. And I don't know about you, but I personally need this reminder. Whenever I ask my mom about what I was like as a baby, she describes me as very happy. Little Brittany was characterized by joy. But this Brittany, the one standing in front of you today, is often characterized by my situations. When things are going well, I'm bubbling over with light and laughter. But when a lot is happening, I'm stressed, paralyzed by perfectionism, and fearful and often hopeless. Maybe you can relate. Maybe Paul's instruction to rejoice in the Lord always is so far from your current situation that it also kind of feels like hyper-spiritual fluff. If someone knew what was going on in your life, how dare they expect you to rejoice always? But for the next few minutes, we're going to sit with Paul's words in this letter. And specifically, we will define joy and its relationship to peace. And then we will discuss how we can choose joy regardless of our circumstances as individuals and as a community. So to begin, what is joy? Joy, as defined by my Bible dictionary, is an emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. 
In the New Testament, the word joy and its cousins appear over 326 times, and about 40% of those instances appear in letters written by Paul. So this tells you that Paul, part of Paul's theology is joy, like joy is a big part of it. And also, when we think about the roots of the words joy and rejoice, they share a root in the word grace, which also connects back to Paul's theology of how just as God's grace was freely given to us through Christ, our joy is freely given to us through our life in Christ. It's not something that we can make on our own. We have joy because we've received God's grace, and we are able to have joy to rejoice in the Lord because we know who he is and his loving kindness towards us because of Jesus. Now, I could stay here, but there's more. This letter was written to a community. It wasn't written just to one or two people. And oftentimes, especially when I read this letter, I tend to individualize it and be like, okay, this is about my peace. This is about my joy. But for Paul, he, joy comes from people, not things. Joy comes from relationships, not circumstances or experiences. In this passage, Paul begins his concluding remarks in a similar way that he concluded another letter. In the letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote in chapter 5, or the first letter to the Thessalonians, because there's more than one, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And it's interesting to note that parallel because right after he, um, right before he spoke about rejoicing in that text, he was calling that church to unity. And similarly, here in Philippians, he's not just saying rejoice for the sake of rejoicing, it's rejoicing for the sake of their unity. And so let me just connect the dots here because they're in my head, but I'm going to make them really, really clear. Our decision to choose joy is necessary because our well-being affects our relationships. And so peace, what is promised to us as a result of our prayers, isn't just about our experience of peace. It's about peace between individuals. It's about peace in our homes. It's about peace within our church. For Paul, peace is a community matter. And we can see this because in his other letters, when he mentions peace, he tends to do so in community or relational settings. In Ephesians, he mentions Christ is our peace, who has made Jew and Gentile one people. In Romans, he mentions that Jew and Gentile together are urged to make every effort to do what leads to peace. And in Colossians, he mentions, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Peace is unity in Paul's theology. And so this is where I'm going to show up fully as myself. So I am currently in seminary, and I just finished taking a class called Introduction to Pastoral Care and Counseling. And one of the things that we learned about was family systems, ther family systems theory, which I'm not a clinician. I'm not about to go all the way into it. But one of the things that they mention is that after air water, food, and shelter, the quality of our relationships most often determines the quality of a person's life. That the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our relationships. 
and that also in our relationships there are these two opposing forces. There's this force of individualization where we want to be whole, separate, unique individuals. But then we also have this force, this urge to be in community. We want to be known. We want to be loved. We want to be cared for. And in our life in church, in our life in our homes, in our families, we are struggling with those two forces, a force of wanting to be together and a force of wanting to be unique individuals. We're balancing our needs for individualization and differentiation. But we cannot have peace in our relationships if we lack joy as individuals. And so for the rest of the time, now that I've laid out briefly joy and peace, I'm going to walk us through Paul's reminder that we can choose joy regardless of our circumstances. And so I will talk through how we can choose joy as individuals and then how we can choose joy as a community. We choose joy as individuals, according to this text, by working through our anxiety. Again, we choose joy as individuals by working through our anxiety. So in verse 6... The passage reads, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this word and the beginning of verse 6, anxious, it appears 19 times in the New Testament, but only here in the New International version is it translated as anxious. In all the other instances, it's translated more along the lines of worry or concern. And we see that particularly in in the book of Matthew and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So in for those, um, actually I'll read a bit of it because it's that good. It's the word of Jesus. Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples to not worry about their life. And I'll read briefly. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then he continues. And each time that Jesus says, do not worry in this passage is the same word that Paul is using in the passage we're reading today, but he's saying anxiety. And so I mention that because I know for some of us, the word anxiety is a loaded one. Some of us have personal or someone we know and love experiences anxiety and it's crooked cousin depression. And so we know that we can't just make ourselves not anxious. And so I'm, I'm mentioning this so that we can come to this text with a bit of an open, with open eyes and not necessarily put up a bridge automatically that's like, oh, that's not possible. But like, okay, let's see what he's trying to say here. And so... Still forking around that word anxious, right? We also see that word appearing in the Gospel of Luke in a well-known passage where Jesus is responding to Martha, who Martha is, you know, busy doing all this stuff and is like, hey, Jesus, aren't you going to make my sister help me? And Jesus is like, hey, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few are needed or indeed only one. That same word is what's here. And so the fact that Jesus said these things, as well as Paul is reminding the Philippians to do these things, we can see that this instruction isn't meant to harm us, but it's meant to free us. Particularly because worry harms us as individuals. In our physical health, 
Excessive worry can lead to heart problems and breathing problems and digestion problems and problems in our immune system. But worry also harms us as a community because if we're honest, when we're really stressed, when we're going through, we are more likely to be harsh with, our, with those around us. And so do not worry in this context. Do not be anxious. It's not meant to be burdensome, but to give us another more life-giving option. And the option that Paul gives us is that instead of worrying in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present our request to God. I want to point out here in this text, in this translation at least, prayer and petition are separate words. How often when we pray do we just do the petition? We just start talking, God, give me this. God, I need this. Lord, make this happen. There's nothing wrong with that. Part of what we are meant to do as creatures who are dependent on God is to seek God's provision for things. But there's a step between that. Before we get to petition in this particular instruction from Paul, there's this word prayer. And my invitation for us today is the same one that my therapist, because I proudly have a therapist, she's awesome, recommended to me, is that prayer in this context is an invitation to contemplate our situation with intention under the loving gaze of God. So when we are anxious, when we realize that something doesn't feel right inside us, before we go to someone else, even to God, saying, God, fix this. May we sit within ourselves and recognize, what is this? What am I feeling? What is happening within me? And then moving on to what do I need? Because here's the thing. God always speaks the first word. And so if we can sit and wonder before we just start talking and blurbing out of our anxiety, we could hear what God is possibly inviting us to in these moments. Because sometimes we are thinking too much to hear God's voice. Our minds are too noisy. Our anxieties are cluttering our vision and we can't see God. And so rather than jumping right into this is what I need, may we stop and pause and pray. So let me get specific. The next time you notice yourself worrying, take a moment and pause. That pause can be as simple as going and getting yourself a cup of water. It can be as simple as making yourself a cup of tea. But in that moment of pause, be honest with yourself and God. What is happening inside you? What is it making you feel? And what do you need? And then listen. Don't just start talking about it. Listen. Is there something that God is inviting you to pray for or to do? Is there something true that's already been said that you did not consider? Is there something that you have learned or received that could be put into practice in this moment? You won't hear it if you don't take a time to pause and listen. Secondly, we can choose joy as individuals by considering and doing what we know to be good. In verse 8, Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes when we have a lot of feelings, we aren't thinking. Anxiety literally impairs our ability to think clearly. And the verb for think in this passage is usually rendered as reckon or take into into account. And so one one biblical scholar, Gordon Fee, has described this as Paul is not telling the Philippians so much to think high thoughts. He's not telling them to think lofty things and, you know, be all philosophical and stuff. Rather, he's saying to take into account the good they have known from their past as long as it is conformable to Christ. And so, again, thinking about how this letter was not just written to individuals but to a community, we can think about how this thinking good thoughts isn't just for the sake of our own well-being, it's for the sake of nurturing our community. Because how often, when you're interacting with someone, does your mind go straight to the worst possible thing that they could have thought? Like, you just automatically go to the worst intentions. And especially in a church like ours, multi-ethnic, coming from multiple different backgrounds, it's really easy for us to fall into those patterns of interpreting people's behaviors. But the invitation here is to choose to consider good. But also, not to consider good in the kind of, oh, we're just going to push disrespect under the rug. We're just going to deal with people who do things wrong and are just backwards in all the ways. No, Paul is also saying, do what I demonstrated too. So if that means calling people out, that means doing so in love. But it also means being self-sacrificing and humble and willing to be patient. And so another invitation here in terms of choosing joy is what good Christ-like behaviors were you taught? What do you know to do? Are you doing that? Perhaps it's extending hospitality, refraining from judgment, or just simply showing up to church on Sunday, even when you don't feel like it. And so as we move into the conclusion here, we're going to briefly touch on how do we choose joy as a community. We can choose joy regardless of our circumstances as a community by leaning into both giving and receiving. In verse 15, Paul writes, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And he continues. And so Paul had a special relationship with the church in Philippi. And thinking back to, you know, first century convention, when Paul would go and establish a new church, these folks, they still had their... their, regular worldviews, their ways of interacting with leaders. And at the time, there was a thing called patronage, where it's kind of like, I scratch your back, you scratch my back, but also like there's a hierarchical component of it, and whoever is providing the finances is then in control of the person they gave the money to. And so for some of Paul's less mature churches, he refused to take money from them, because he knew that if he took money from them, they would see that as their way to control what he would preach or control how he would teach them. 
But with the Philippians, for one reason or another, the text doesn't always tell us why, he was willing to both give and receive. And I think that's something for us to try to emulate here in our church. Because oftentimes there can be, resentments can form when we give more than we receive and vice versa. Paul wrote to a community that had shaped him as much as he had shaped them. The fact that he was abounding in that moment was because they had given him gifts. They had sent someone with financial material goods to support him while he was in prison and also to encourage him. But just think, what if Paul was like, maybe I'm going to say, I'm not going to put y'all on blast. I'll say like, like me, I got this. I don't need anyone else's help. He wouldn't have been able to experience God in that way if he hadn't been willing to receive. And so I'm going to just say it because it, it, it bears saying. This is what makes our unity so subversive. As a church, we are believing that God is sufficient for all of our needs, and we lean into Christ's sufficiency rather than self-sufficiency. Oftentimes, when I read verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength, I see that as a battle cry for my own soul. Like, I can do whatever life may come, might send my way because Christ gives me strength. But what I sometimes fail to acknowledge is the church is the body of Christ. So for me to say Christ is strengthening me, for me to say that Christ is what's supporting me, how can that be true if I am not accepting help from the hands and feet and arms of the body of Christ? And so that in itself is an invitation for us. For us to be able to choose joy as a community, we have to be willing to show up as both givers and receivers. When we need help, we say that and we receive it. When we have something to give, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's just our physical presence, we give it. All right, y'all. So in conclusion, what Paul is instructing here is not some secret to happiness. Rather, it is the basic behavioral expectations of being a Christian. That we would trust God, not just with our words, but with our lives. That we would trust God enough to sit and listen to him instead of worrying. That we would trust God enough to acknowledge that he's already given us answers to the questions that we have. Whether we know them now or we're just waiting for them to be spoken by someone we're in community with. That we would depend on God in every situation rather than delude ourselves into thinking that we can sustain ourselves. And that we would not just talk about unity, but actually live it out by being both willing to give and receive. Some of you may have heard me mention this before, but it's still worth mentioning because it's one of my favorite illustrations. Have you ever seen a dog shaking? Like, you know how they just like start shaking like crazy? And so for dogs, shaking is a form of resetting. So they were focused on something else. They were playing. They were, you know, chasing another dog, whatever, looking for a squirrel. But then when they're on to the next thing, they just shake it off and then they can focus again. 
like an Etch-a-Sketch, you know, like you wrote some stuff on there and then you shake it and then it's gone. The shaking doesn't mean it never happened. It just means it doesn't stop you from moving forward. And so my invitation for us today is that choosing joy is like that. Choosing joy means that we know that living our lives gets hard. We know that there will be trials and tribulations, but we know that if we just stop and reset, if we stop and listen to God, if we stop and remember what God has already told us, if we stop and plug into the church, that this doesn't have to define us. Because the good news is Christ humbled himself, came down from his seat in the Godhead to be a finite suffering human just like us, to teach us and demonstrate for us just how much God loves us. Letting us know that God is love was so important that Jesus personally came down to relay the message. And he came that we may have life more abundantly, that we would see through our hardships to view God's reckless and all-consuming love for us, that instead of being bogged down by our circumstances, that we would choose joy. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for giving up all that you had so that we could have all that you have. Thank you for sharing yourself with us that we may share ourselves with others. God, help us to be good stewards of ourselves. God, help us to acknowledge the ways in which we're not doing all right so that we can become all right, so that we aren't pouring from empty vessels, God, but that we are present and whole as you want us to be. And so, God, I conclude with a lightly uh, edited rendition of the serenity prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as we would have it. Trusting that God will make all things right if we surrender to his will. So that we may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with Jesus forever and ever in the next. Amen.